I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome back to our broadcast, Travis View. He is the managing editor and director of the QAnon Anonymous podcast, one of the most expert chroniclers of the Q movement. And I am delighted to welcome back to the podcast, uh, Travis View. Uh, Alexander, thank you so much for having me again. Travis, when I hosted you in person at the beginning of the pandemic, um, I asked you a question that is on my mind in the aftermath of the insurrection at the Capitol, which is, does QAnon have political goals and aspirations? And I was hoping that you could possibly answer that question again, especially in light of what's transpired both at the, and the capital insurrection and with all of the rhetoric to reverse the election, often by authoritarian means, if you could answer that question again about the political objectives of QAnon. Yeah, well, I mean, QAnon uh, is, is essentially an apocalyptic movement that believes that, um, you know, there there's going to the only way to institute some sort of glorious new future, a new golden age um, is through the, you know, the mass execution of like top Democrats and lots of other people in Hollywood and media. And uh, the belief that, you know, the, the, these, these sorts of people are the only thing that are preventing us from entering some, from, uh, into some kind of utopia. So it really is uh, um, eliminationist in, uh, in its political goals. They think that a lot of these people uh, are simply irredeemably evil and uh, they need to be swept away in order to have a healthy, prosperous future. Specifically, one of the comments of the insurrectionists on the Hill was to execute the threat and the imminent criminal act was to execute the vice president and maybe other legislators. Have you been able to determine how much of, of the MAGA supporting contingent that took hostage the Congress is in the Q community? You know, you know, exact numbers um, are are obviously uh, kind of difficult to come by. But obviously, there was a significant number of QAnon followers who were part of that capital siege. Uh, one of the most famous was the so-called uh, Q shaman. There was this man wearing a uh, sort of looked like a buffalo headdress and and uh, and uh, uh, red, white, and blue face paint. He's actually someone I've I've met a couple times before he uh, became uh, you know internationally famous for participating in that. Um, and so uh, this is something that was certainly um, you know uh, led in part by people of the QAnon community. So it's hard to identify precisely. It's hard to ascertain it. But from your reporting on Q, can you give a ballpark estimate as to what percent of folks in the insurrection who marched on the Capitol, rioted, and ultimately you know, invaded the chamber, if there were 10,000 of those protesters, do you just have a sense of how many of the protesters and rioters represented Q as opposed to just being a follower of Donald Trump? 
You know, um, you know, I think the problem with that with there really is not sort of a sort of a clean line between sort of a um, sort of a, a QAnon follower and a sort of a non-Q Trump supporter. For example, there are many people in that crowd who perhaps wouldn't consider themselves QAnon followers and don't follow the Q drops, but nevertheless believe conspiracy theories that were fostered and generated by and emerged from the QAnon community. So they were being affected by the QAnon community in their worldview. So if like if 10% of the people, for example, were uh, were out and out QAnon followers, uh, it's still possible that like, you know, the majority of them, 70, 80% believe that uh, or 100% even believe that, uh, for example, like Dominion voting systems was part of a plot to um, to sort of overturn the election. Um, and so this is sort of a conspiracy theory that was very much nurtured uh, within the QAnon community and sort of like spread out into further uh, the MAGA world, basically. So, I mean, really, it's it's the, I think the big problem with it is that the, the whole event by itself uh, represented a sort of a QAnon like detachment from reality. I mean, the only reason that they were in D.C. is because they've been misled to believe that somehow there was some possible way that Mike Pence could possibly reverse the election. And that there was like that it was somehow possible that Trump could still win this. And then Pence could somehow um, make some sort of executive decision to hand, hand Trump the win. Uh, this is a fantasy. This is based on nothing exactly in reality. And this is the kind of like general attitude we see from QAnon followers. They prefer to live in their own alternate fantasy world because it makes them feel, uh, you know, more powerful and more comfortable. That is the climate that induced and incited the riot and the invasion of the Capitol. For how many months, either prior to election day or since the results were official in the States, and the electoral count registered prior to certification day. How active was the QAnon community and, and in, in suggesting the overthrow of the government um, both before and then after election day? Well, the thing is that they wouldn't even like frame it as sort of an overthrow of the government. They would frame it as sort of like an exposure of like how, how corrupt the government is. In fact, after Trump lost, uh, a lot of the QAnon community simply said that um, this was actually uh, all done deliberately. Uh, they 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 claimed that uh, Trump intended to uh, lose this way. They allowed a massive amount of uh, basically election fraud to happen so that the people who uh, committed this election fraud could be exposed and, and arrested. So, I mean, they don't see it as sort of like overthrow of the government. They see it as sort of like uh, actually sort of correcting an overthrow of the government, of a, uh, correcting an illegitimate election. I mean, th- these people there, they are, they just, they have a completely different frame of reference. They really don't see themselves as, uh, as insurrectionists. They see themselves as, you know, people who deeply value the constitution and the rule of law. Now, this is uh, obviously a complete inversion of reality, but, but it's just it's so central to their, their self-image that they can't simultaneously uh, sort of just admit to themselves that they just they really don't believe in democracy. They don't want to recognize the results of a uh, legitimate election because their guy lost. Right. And their feelings are not to be justified according to the law or the Constitution, 
when in fact they represent a violation of those norms and the democratic order. Um, and, and their presence is antithetical to civil society. They say society is uncivil, but in actuality, it is, it is the same kind of projectionist tactic that Donald Trump uses in his demagoguery. They are the incivility. And I don't think that a lot of Americans understood that QAnon represented domestic terrorism, not just craziness in some abstract web forums. So again, it's, it is projectionist in, in the idea that there is evil going out in the world and they're going to correct it when they are themselves responsible for the deaths of people and fomenting discord, disunion. How many of the Q community are aware that they were premeditating criminal acts? I mean, if, is there any self-awareness in the Q community? Well, um, I mean, you have to, um, I mean, think about like how the insurrectionists behaved when they went in the Capitol. Like if they were sort of, they were cognizant that they were basically um, sort of uh, committing serious crimes and sort of violating democratic norms, they probably, they probably wouldn't film themselves committing those acts. They probably would wear masks in order to conceal their identity um, because, but they didn't see themselves like that. They, they thought that they were uh, quite comfortable sort of uh, live streaming themselves doing these things and they could uh, they could you know uh, sometimes in some cases actually say their name out loud um, because they thought that the Trump had their back they thought that they had the full support of Trump and therefore uh, it would be unlikely it would be unlikely that um, sort of serious consequences would uh, come to them uh, now, obviously, a lot of them are getting a rude awakening as uh, you know law enforcement uh, sort of tracks them down and arrests them but um i mean they simply did not you know just recognize uh, you know how how unlawful and how sort of uh, anti democratic their their actions were they thought they were actually uh, upholding norm assuming that they are not issued a pardon or some kind of unprecedented blanket pardon of murderous uh criminality the joke is on them Trump is engaging in a kind of wink-wink pathology here and pseudoscience with them, but they are the ones imprisoned and they are the ones who are, who are held accountable. And likely Trump will not be convicted if he's impeached again, and he will likely not serve time in prison. Um, so I, how do you get at that tension? The fact that their, their loyal savior is winking at them and ultimately, most likely, they will not be pardoned and they will not be defended. And, and, and that's the, the inconsistency. There is a kind of vocabulary and verbal honoring of them. But Trump is not going to honor them um, in their deed, but he's going to help them precipitate their criminal activity. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, the whole thing is really, um, I mean, a kind of fraud being perpetuated by Trump. I mean, he uh, essentially Im implied or sometimes outright uh, claimed that somehow their their aggression and their presence in D.C. would possibly have 
uh, a good outcome, like uh, in, the, in this case would be reelecting him. Of course, there was no possibility of that happening. It was a fraudulent promise. And as, but because these people, they believed uh, that promise, uh, nonetheless, they found themselves, yeah, in situations and where they're going to have to spare, uh, face serious jail time. And, you know, in a, a couple cases, for example, in the case of Ashley Babbitt, the woman who was shot at the Capitol, uh, she lost her life in, in uh, sort of in pursuit of this, uh, this lie, this belief that, um, that she could somehow reverse the results of the election by uh, taking these actions. Um, so yeah, it is tragic. This is something we often see with QAnon followers is that they, they, uh, they destroy themselves over, um, over the, over completely false hope over a lie. And we see this over and over again, but this has been obviously one of the most dramatic examples of that. Q accounts have been removed from Twitter. Uh, and I, and I'll ask you specifically if that is true in totality that the Q presence has been wiped well, it's um, yeah, obviously uh, QAnon. Uh, yeah, so what happened was that Twitter did probably the, one of the most dramatic crackdowns on QAnon content that we've seen. They banned all of the major promoters and about seventy thousand uh, other QAnon accounts. Um, now, I would not say that the, the QAnon presence is totally gone. I can easily find uh, several uh, QAnon accounts uh, right now, but for the most part, they actually they have been pushed onto sort of alternate platforms like Gab, like Telegram. Uh, so I would say that the QAnon presence on Twitter is crippled, uh, but it certainly hasn't disappeared. So now we know that that Parler is the operating grounds for Q as a backup, but, but um, the App Store and web services uh, have denied access to Parler, um, which really lacks security and engages in completely unvetted um, assassination attempts and hate speech and, uh, and threats that were continued after the Capitol insurrection. So if, if not Twitter or Facebook or Parler, um, where are the Q interacting right now? They are uh, going into like private uh, telegram channels. Um, sometimes they go into discord and uh, they go to gab. And, um, you know, the real risk of this is that um, even though they're sort of denied a platform on these major social media uh, networks, what's happening is that now they're going to be essentially simmering in um, the places where other kinds of violent extremists kind of gather. That includes like white nationalists. Um, so that that even though that they don't have as much of a reach, um, it's possible that these QAnon followers, because they're just going to marinate in a sort of a more hateful uh, social media environment, that they'll become further radicalized. That is the argument, Travis. But you and I on the broadcast discussed the reality, which was in the 1990s, in Web 1.0, if you will, the extremist and domestic terrorist element still existed in this country. You had the Oklahoma City bombing. You had online chat rooms that were fomenting domestic terrorism. Um, of course, Twitter and Facebook normalized their discourse, uh, which has common frames, uh, if not is identical to 
the discourse of our president and some of his more, most stalwart allies. The point is that I challenge your, your thesis um, based on the fact that we did not face the same domestic terrorist threat uh, that was ongoing in the 90s, uh, even in the 2000s. And you could argue that that was brewing the whole time in private chat settings um, and that Donald Trump gave a voice to it. But the, the truth is that until Twitter and Facebook came along and said, we want to make this mainstream, we want these people to be able to set trending topics and be retweeted and be parroted by the mainstream media. You entered a whole different level of mainstreaming of the domestic terrorist discourse. Um, so how would you respond to that? The, the fact that we have long had private chat room settings in which domestic terrorists chatted with each other. But in those times, the domestic terrorism risk was not as great as it is today. Um, yeah, and, and, and to be clear, I'm not I'm not um, saying Twitter was wrong to institute their most recent crackdown on sort of QAnon and uh, extremist content. I think that uh, in, the, in the long term, it was the, the right call to make. Uh, I would simply argue that actually it would have done a whole lot better if Twitter simply did the exact same action two years ago when it was already obvious where this was headed. Um, if they had done that instead, then perhaps the recruitment efforts of QAnon would not have been so successful. And you would have fewer people who would be able to get deeply radicalized in these more extremist uh, kind of platforms. I mean, like, uh, you know, as I'm not, there really is no easy solution. Um, but I, I would I would just simply uh, point out that even though it is certainly uh, better for these for these uh mainstream social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter and YouTube to take this threat seriously, I, I think we should also pay, uh, uh, sort of like understand that we're all going to pay the price for their slowness to action. So uh, as a consequence, whatever comes next, I think is also going to be uh, sort of rest on the shoulders of Twitter for uh, taking so long to act. Amen, brother. I agree with that. And I appreciate you um, acknowledging that in 2015, um, there was a moment when you could recognize fully what the stakes were. Uh, knowing we are where we are, your job as someone who tracks Q got a whole lot more difficult, along with law enforcement, most likely. Um, and we can argue if, if in totality, the privatization of and the and the deletion and disappearance in the public domain of of Q is is a net positive or or not i i'm arguing that it is but in the context of your work tracking this and you know as a journalist but also the law enforcement who are tracking this um i would imagine it makes it more challenging but intelligence officers have had to do this when it comes to domestic and foreign terrorism for many years, if not decades. 
Yeah, you know, I suppose it does make um, sort of the QAnon community a little bit more difficult to track, but that's only because now, because uh, they are not, they don't have as much access to these mainstream platforms. Uh, they're forced to go on these platforms that uh, sort of a little bit more difficult to use, um, have higher technical barriers, um, and that's, I suppose, that is one uh, of the several positive factors that are part of this this crackdown is that um, a, a lot of the uh, sort of people who might be interested in QAnon, who might be radicalized in this stuff, simply won't be willing to go to Telegram or might have a frustrating time trying to make Gab work. And if that's the case, they certainly won't go straight to 8Coon, where uh, the Q Research Board is. And so the fact that they are uh, being pushed on these platforms, um, you know, again, it makes the people who uh, makes it difficult to track the currently existing QAnon community, but it, it does have a positive effect of like decreasing uh, the, re- the recruitment efforts. Right. So recruitment may be diminished. Um, at the same time, you don't necessarily have the tactical tools, although your investigative prowess is, is <laughs> incomparable uh, in the QAnon reporting community. You can listen to Travis and his colleagues' podcast. You can see their, their reporting on Twitter. They actually suspended you or banned you initially and probably some of your co-hosts. Uh, yeah, they did. They did uh, ban me and my, uh, my, my Q and uh, the Q and anonymous podcast account, but uh, they, they actually, uh, they came back and apologized and gave us verified accounts to sort of uh, to ensure that kind of thing doesn't happen again. So. Do, do you think that they are really able to discern who's following Q journalistically and who's participating in Q as insurrectionists, mm-hmm. domestic terrorists, inciters? I mean, once they clarified you are not part of the suspended party, uh, do you have the sense that they are delineating those lines appropriately? Um, you know, they, it seems like Twitter kind of used a really blunt instrument in the most recent crackdown in order to, uh, get as many kind of active accounts as possible. And as a consequence, a few, a few perfectly legitimate, uh, accounts were, were caught in the crossfire. Um, you know, this is, uh, I, you know, this is sort of the, 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 the risk. And, but I think that the Twitter acted very quickly in order in uh, correcting the, uh, whenever they, whenever there was a false positive and sort of identifying QAnon accounts. Is it going to be possible to, to preserve that? So again, those lines of demarcation, they have correctly erased accounts that are perpetuating lies stop the steal. Um, but I wonder where they draw the line in terms of the reporting on it, because what was happening in Twitter was that false, misleading, dangerous, conspiratorial, and then ultimately terroristic trends were determining, you know, how, how people absorb and so what's the best way you think to report on Q in the aftermath of the insurrection and the suspensions on Twitter and Facebook? Uh, you know, I think that one, one thing that we need to uh, really be concerned about if you're reporting on Q is um, whether or not, whether something is really worth a sort of uh, amplifying a particular message um, so what you're probably going to see from me, for example, is fewer screenshots of of uh, of uh, QAnon accounts 
um, sort of um, sort of like spreading the propaganda. Uh, you know, before if there was a major Twitter account, you know, that got like you know two thousand uh, retweets, I wasn't really too concerned about amplifying that too much because it's already been amplified so much by Twitter itself. But if, there, if we're talking about something on Telegram, something that doesn't get a lot of reach, I think it, you need to start asking about whether or not it's worth it to sort of like um, talk about what exactly the QAnon community is uh, uh, sort of uh, doing and behaving and what they're talking about in a way that doesn't necessarily simply bring those uh, bring those messages from Telegram or Gab or wherever they're gathering now to to Twitter in a way that sort of uh, sort of promotes their propaganda rather than properly contextualizes it. Do you see Q in, in its most insipid becoming? more pronounced as a terrorist organization? Um, yeah, yeah. This is something that has always been a, a big concern. You know, there's there's this concept in um, sort of uh, cult studies, uh, sort of apocalyptic cult studies called forcing the end, which is like, you know, a lot of uh, sort of like apocalyptic cults believe that there's going to be this big, traumatic, destructive event that will, you know, cleanse the world and usher in a utopia. And the question becomes, what happens when people who are sort of like, you know, essentially kind of brainwashed in this way, uh, stop believing that's going to come about naturally. That's going to stop. That won't happen unless they themselves take action. And that's when they start to, you know, start taking more dangerous things. They uh, start doing more dangerous things. They feel like it's a pot, it's, a, it's necessary for themselves to force the end. Uh, so, yeah, this is the danger. What happens when some of them become disillusioned uh, with the plan? They stop trusting that there's going to be some sort of plan that will make everything better. And instead, they'll they'll simply believe that uh, that there is no plan, but they'll still believe in this, uh, you know, the satanic pedophile cabal. And that means that more likely than not, they'll have some motivation to, uh, you know, take their own actions instead of simply relying on the military. What is the worst case scenario in these next weeks and months ahead? How, based on your reporting, how quickly do you think that Q could mobilize as a militia more again more formally you saw a confluence of militia and hooligan if you will uh storming the capital um so it was kind of their d-day halloween um if there's like an evil version of of that um but you know do, do you think there's going to be the impetus to formalize their sedition as like an alternative to the confederacy yeah i mean this is certainly the risk but i feel like it would be if they were to sort of like separate it would be even more it'd be even more dramatic than simply separating from the uh from the from the united states in some sort of political sense they would they're simply electing to secede from empirical reality i mean they don't choose to acknowledge the same basic facts uh that that the rest of us do that you know that like for example they may simply believe that, you know, actually uh, Donald Trump is still the uh, legitimate president and, um, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll act as if that is the case. Um, so this is, uh, yeah, I mean, 
it, it could be very, very uh, dramatic, especially, uh, you know, after the inauguration and a lot of um, it, it stops being um, the results of the election become perfectly clear again. Yeah, the you know the thing is is that the exact way in which they behave is is always difficult to predict because a lot of it honestly depends upon the actions and words of Donald Trump, which already are very erratic and difficult to uh, foresee. So um, you know, it, uh, a lot of it does depend upon whether or not uh, uh, Trump decides to uh, how he, how he behaves and what his rhetoric is going to be like after the inauguration. Some of us are concerned about getting to Inauguration Day and getting through Inauguration Day. Inauguration Day as the start of a new beginning, which leads me to my final question for you, Travis, which is, what is the best case scenario for basically not just deplatforming Q on Twitter and Facebook, but deplatforming it across society and making it once again the minor element that it was more, at least in the public perception, if not reality, prior to the Trump presidency? Yeah, I mean, the best case scenario would uh, be the, the, the cut off all opportunity for these QAnon propagandists to uh, spread their nonsense conspiracy theories and sort of uh, marginalize it uh, once again, I mean, you know, with like the, the, I mean, the United States have, has always had a, um, a conspiratorial faction in politics for hundreds of years. That's always how it's worked. The, but the issue is that sometimes it's grown in power and sometimes, uh, its power has shrunk. And so the, um, the, really the best case scenario is that they would go back to being a, uh, sort of a marginal, uh, curiosity on the some barely functioning websites rather than a force that is so influential it can spark an insurrection on the capital do you have a sense of of the steps to do that i mean now that we've seen the suspensions from social media what are the next steps for the de-radicalization um yeah <laughs> i'll be honest um i really i really not sure what the what the like next steps uh would be for for that i mean i don't see a scenario in which which all of these people are suddenly realizing that they were mistaken um you know it would be it would be unprecedented to de-radicalize so many people in uh, a short enough uh, amount of time to um sort of defuse the threat posed by QAnon. Uh, I would certainly like to see that happen, but uh, by all appearances, this is simply going to be part of the political landscape in the United States from now on. Travis View, thank you again for joining me on the podcast. I appreciated the opportunity to meet you some months ago and hope that we can continue the dialogue about the de-radicalization. Absolutely. Always a pleasure.